0: Welcome to Cinematic Doctrine, a Christian podcast service that encourages and equips Christians to engage and reform the culture of cinema. Tonight we'll be dining on Charlie Bean's Lady and the Tramp. Disney Plus is finally here, and it's amazing how quickly the excitement of something like this can dwindle in a day when the service shows its faults. Frames skipping, videos freezing, the application outright crashing. Can't help but wonder when the launch of a new popular service will go smoothly. At least Disney Plus wasn't as wild as World of Warcraft Classic, where people were in digital lines that spanned thousands of players just to access certain areas of the game world. But enough about the service, I figured a fun way to inaugurate the launch of everyone's new $7 monthly streaming service was to review an original movie featured on that service, and what better film to start with than Disney's fourth live-action remake this year, Lady and the Tramp. Let's waste no time. Let me tell you what Lady and the Tramp is all about. After years of waiting, Jim Deere has finally bought his lovely wife, Darling Deere, the gift she's always wanted. A dog. It's a little cocker spaniel whose fluffy coat is soft to the touch. They name her Lady and they give her tons and tons of love. However, Lady is worried. Her masters seem unwell. Jim is stressed and fearful, while Darling, who's gained a lot of weight in the past few weeks, seems tired all the time. She's confused, and when she consults her neighboring dog friends, they have no idea what's going on. Enter the scruffy, mangy, mud of a street dog who goes by many names. The one that seems to stick, of all things, is Tramp, and as he runs from a nearby dog catcher, he happens upon Lady in her predicament. In his peril, he tells Lady, If you let me hide here, I'll tell you about the baby. Baby? She asks. Tramp then tells her, Right now you're the center of attention, but once the baby's in, the dog's gonna be out. Fearing his words, she barks and grabs the attention of the dog catcher. Tramp dashes off and, with every fiber of her dog being, she hopes to doggy heaven that what Tramp said is anything but true. Soon she embarks on a doggy adventure, as she contemplates what home is, where she belongs, and stumbles upon an unconventional date night with a mangy mutt. Lady and the Tramp is rated PG for some mild thematic elements and action peril. Thematic elements, as far as certification is concerned, essentially means uncategorized. Often, it's used to say the movie evokes emotions like fear, romance, that sort of thing. And in this case, it's the fear of a dog catcher taking Tramp to the pound or Lady expressing fear for her masters. And the action peril has to do with a chase scene in the third act and essentially anything that's high stakes. Also, I find this particular thing just funny to mention. There's basically a part in the film where Tramp is helping Lady take a muzzle off, but the way that Charlie Bean chose to edit the scene makes it look like, oh, something else is going on. And I found that important to mention because if you're an adult, you know what's being evoked here, and it's just straight-up weird to watch. Like, if you know how dogs work, it just makes the scenes all the more... strange... And this is also a personal thing, but I always thought tramp was supposed to be a pretty vulgar word, but I guess it's not. I know it's an old derogatory term targeted at homeless people and subsequently used to target loose women afterward, but considering the film is titled Lady and the Tramp and has an entire song about how Tramp is called, well, Tramp, then maybe I'm just wrong. Either way, it goes without saying, the word tramp is used a lot in this film, so if that's already a red flag, well, then you're gonna have a terrible time. Now, before we take a look at Lady and the Tramp, I wanted to share real quick that if you've come to enjoy Cinematic Doctrine and would like to support the show, be sure to leave a review on your respective podcast app at the end of this episode. You can also check out two new shows featured under Cinematic Doctrine called Trailer Talk and Monthly Movie News if you're interested in more content. And be sure to check out cinematicdoctrine.com where you can also get connected with our social media. Also, Cinematic Doctrine has a Patreon. For as little as $3 a month, you can join other patrons and vote on a movie I review once a month, as well as take joy in feeding my coffee addiction. Any amount is appreciated with multiple tiers to choose from, all of which go toward making Cinematic Doctrine the best podcast it can be. Anyways, on to the review. Confession, I haven't seen the 1955 Lady and the Tramp. There, I said it. Well, okay, maybe I have. You, you see, the thing with these Disney classic animated features is I can't really tell if I've ever sat through them or not. I have vague memories and snapshots of certain scenes here and there, but for the most part, I have virtually no memory of these movies. I feel like that's a pretty important thing to mention when looking at a live-action Disney remake. Nostalgia seems to do one of two things when it comes to these movies, after all. People either sugarcoat their experience with the film, as it references and calls back to things they liked about the previous iteration, or people are disgusted by the blatant manipulation of their nostalgia and angrily tweet things like, Disney, stop ruining my childhood! Although, interestingly enough, Walt Disney's passion was always to evoke nostalgia. The Disney theme parks were a pursuit of recreating his childhood fascination with Kansas City's Electric Park. The Disney animated features were built upon old fairy tales, and whether or not their current nostalgic pursuits age like fine wine or curdle like warm milk is for you to decide, I suppose, but it's all the same to me. Disney is built on nostalgia, and it pursues it endlessly. Suffice to say, I'll be looking at Charlie Bean's Lady and the Tramp with fresh eyes. And my fresh eyes say... it's a bit too silly. Maybe that's a dumb thing to say when discussing a movie with talking dogs that go on a date. But there's definitely a fine line between what makes sense and what doesn't, and there are just a few things at the end of this film that made me shake my head with disbelief. And, like, okay, I'm not here to nitpick the film, and I feel like most people would feel inclined to say, Come on, Melvin, don't you know how to have fun? It's just a talking dog movie. You don't have to be critical about that, do you? Well, like, that's the whole point of this podcast, for one, and for another, even talking dog movies have parameters of what works and what doesn't. But I digress. Sometimes I feel like this podcast is me defending myself against some imaginary figure I make up. I play my own devil's advocate, after all. But that's the thing with these Disney live-action films. By being set in live-action, certain things change on how we engage a film, and when cartoonish, unrealistic stuff tries to look realistic, it can get confusing and silly. For instance, a talking dog can look great in an animated feature. The whole world is depicted in a fantastic, colorful, unrealistic manner, and therefore the boundaries for realism within the world are... You know, turned up to 11. So a talking dog isn't all that abnormal. Look at the Looney Tunes, for instance. When Roadrunner is floating mid-air, just beyond a cliffside, that looks totally normal in the Looney Tunes, but if you see that in a live-action picture, it doesn't look quite right. And neither would a 10-ton anvil landing on a person's head, for that matter. So when you have a talking dog feature that is set in live-action, you need to get everything right. And because you're already having to carry your audience through an abnormal situation in a live-action setting, you really have to get everything right. Not only do the dogs have to look realistic, they must do things that look realistic. Why? Because you're already having to convince me that these dogs are real. To push those boundaries starts to break down my ability to be convinced of what's going on. Uh, Okay, okay, so maybe I'm taking Lady and the Tramp too seriously. But I feel like this isn't all that ridiculous when you take into account the fact that one of the bulldogs in the movie didn't even look like it was done rendering. To explain, and I may not get this entirely right because I'm not an animator, most computer-generated graphics these days are made with a 3D animated model. However, something like one of those dogs during animation doesn't really look like a dog. It will have a skeletal mesh, basically straight lines with a couple joints, that are easy for an animator to interact with. After the animator is done working with the movements, artists will begin layering the skeletal mesh with textures, and these textures are how you get the color and design of what a dog would look like in real life. On top of that would be any effects, such as the fur, the gloss in an eye, perhaps even the lining of moisture on the snout of a dog. After this, the model is input into a scene, and someone else needs to set up lighting. If the camera is facing where this model is standing and the light source, like the sun, is behind the camera, the model needs to imitate that light source, along with anything that may reflect the light onto the model, such as the reflection of a puddle on the ground or perhaps even the reflection off a white coat on another CGI dog. Basically, there are a lot of steps to animating something that is computer-generated, and something about one of the street dogs looks completely unfinished. There's a bulldog that basically looks like it missed both the lighting and effects stages, so it just looks like a sticker. It's like something slapped onto the scene, but has no depth. It's really distracting. And if you saw the title of this episode, Uncanny Valley for Dogs, then you're starting to understand why I said that. Because that bulldog looks like a bulldog. It moves like a bulldog. And because it's in a live-action setting, it almost fits the scene, but there's something off, and it just doesn't look right. That said, a key thing about Uncanny Valley is that you notice something is wrong, but you can't figure out what. And while I can tell you what's wrong with the bulldog, I can't tell you what's wrong with the schnauzer. One of Lady's neighboring dogs has such an Uncanny Valley effect that I didn't even want to look at that dog. And I know something was wrong with that model, but for the life of me, I couldn't figure it out. So I just opted not to look at it. Now, you won't really have this issue with either Lady or Tramp although Lady looks the most realistic of the two. But that still doesn't excuse the issues with the other dogs, and I don't want to, like, beat down on the animators here. The problem isn't that they're animating poorly. The problem is that movies like these are churned out so swiftly and have such a short production time that animators can't finish their work. You may have noticed that despite having great CGI in films like... Pirates of the Caribbean Dead Man's Chest, or even certain sequences in the Star Wars prequels, we haven't gotten much cleaner or crisper CGI since then. I mean, those two movies came out over a decade ago, and Davy Jones' tentacle beard still looks better than most modern CGI. But the difference is that back then, they likely had a lot more time to refine and rework certain aspects of the animation. Not only that, they can input some cute quirks, like with Davy Jones, how he has a weird snout-like funnel on the side of his face that exhales moisture. A quirk like that makes it feel so much more real. And that's a key thing about CGI, it's not about making something look real, it's about making something feel real. And that's probably why the Uncanny Valley effect is so powerful nowadays. We can't really put our finger on what's wrong with some of the CGI in modern movies, but we feel wrong about it so it turns us off. And if you're rushing your animators to get the job done, they'll likely be more focused on making things look real rather than feel realistic. So, movie studios? I'm calling you out. Stop rushing your animation studios. Give them time to breathe! But back to the film. It's a tad silly, the film has this uncanny valley effect, and also it's just not all that entertaining. But maybe that's where I get off the bus. This film is probably more entertaining for kids, and maybe for adults who have seen the original, but not all that good for someone who has nothing invested in Lady and the Tramp to begin with, or, well, has all that much invested in these sort of Disney properties. Also, the original film is only 76 minutes, and the remake is 104 minutes, and how they were able to make this story any longer, or rather, why they made this story any longer, is beyond me. And that's probably where the silly stuff comes in. I think some things were added just to add them, as opposed to really giving Lady and the Tramp any more meat than it needed. Now, something else I want to address is that, with cinematic doctrine, I really try and figure out ways in which I can talk about certain biblical themes with a movie. It's not like I review a movie and decide to skip over something biblical. I think any of my longtime listeners know this, but if you're just plugging into this episode, you may wonder why I haven't spoken about anything biblical yet. The thing is, with Lady and the Tramp, I just don't feel like there's much to talk about. It's not a very good movie, and not necessarily a bad one either. If it were a good movie, I feel like that would mean the messages and themes and, dare I say, performances, music, or cinematography would inspire some sort of biblical perspective here. Or worse off, if the film was terrible or offensive, I would have something to aggressively rebuke and therefore attack it from a biblical standing. But something like Lady and the Tramp simply feels empty. It's kind of soulless, to say the least, and while I can't say anything directly to the film, I will say this. Don't just take my opinion on this film. Get someone else's. Talk to your friends or other church members. Maybe they respond to this movie differently than I did. As I mentioned in the beginning, someone might be really into these Disney live-action remakes and their opinions might be totally different or someone might hate them as cash grabs and have something else to talk about. Both I think are important to hear out. At the very least, they probably lead to better, more biblical discussions than I can offer here. And you know what? If someone can spark a genuinely interesting biblical discussion of the supposed themes present in Lady and the Tramp, you better be in the cinematic doctrine comment section because I want to be a part of that. (laughs) You know what? As I think about it, there might be an interesting thread here. I mean, let's take it in this way. Is there an intrinsic value to something like this movie? I mean, look at it this way. What I've heard is that people don't really care for this film in the same way they've cared or loved the first one. In other words, Charlie Bean's rendition of Lady and the Tramp isn't as good as the original. Also, apart from the original, this film doesn't offer much of anything new. At least, that's how I feel about it. As mentioned, there aren't any exceptional performances. I've completely forgotten the music. The visuals stagnate soon after the film starts, and if I'm being honest, if I wasn't working on this review, I probably would have forgotten I watched it. I don't really know if I can be convinced that there's a valuable lesson in the film, nor some sort of message, theme, or tone that could be helpful for a grown adult, let alone young children. Like, at the end of the day, the film is just a bunch of shiny and colorful visuals with some occasionally cute antics. In other words, the film is the equivalent of a nice wallpaper. The thing about nice wallpaper is that it's still wallpaper. And nobody really uses wallpaper anymore. And if you saw it, you'd say it looks alright, but still have the urge to tear it down and redo it with a nice coat of fresh paint. So with all that said, is there value to films like this? Well, maybe. I I have a friend who babysits a lot, and she said her little chillins were enjoying the film. So at the end of the day... Maybe it's just a call to tell me to get off the bus. Thanks so much for tuning into this episode of Cinematic Doctrine. If you've seen Lady and the Tramp, what did you think of it? Do you like these live-action remakes, or do you want Disney to put out original features? If you're listening on Cinematic Doctrine's website, let me know in the comments below, or shoot me an email to cinematicdoctrine at gmail.com. If you're on Letterboxd, I have a list compiling every movie I've reviewed on Cinematic Doctrine with direct links to those episodes, so be sure to check that out, and consider following me on Letterboxd for quick, bite-sized reviews on every movie I watch. If you'd like to support the show, jump on over to Cinematic Doctrine's Facebook page, and be sure to follow for updates on episodes, movie news, and my usual shenanigans. From there, you can also get connected with the Cinematic Doctrine Facebook group and join the conversation. You can also support the show by leaving a review for Cinematic Doctrine on your respective podcast app. And if that's not enough, head on over to Cinematic Doctrine's Patreon. For as little as $3 a month, you can join other patrons and vote on a movie I review once a month, as well as take joy in feeding my coffee addiction. Any amount is appreciated, with multiple tiers to choose from. All of it goes toward making Cinematic Doctrine the best podcast it can be. A special shout-out to those who supported the arthouse theater tier. Thank you so much, Mom and Dad. You're the best. All of this will be available in the show notes. Until next time, stay cool. Want some Cinematic Doctrine swag? You're in luck. We've got 3-inch Cinematic Doctrine logo stickers exclusive for Patreon supporters. Perfect for your travel mug or laptop. Head over to patreon.com/cinematicdoctrine, forward link in the show notes, and choose the Independent Theater tier. Doing so will net you other perks too. But let's be real, the podcast stickers are the coolest perk. So get yourself some podcast stickers by supporting on Patreon.